We serve an amazing God, and he has shown amazing love for us. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me as we pray through Psalm 65 together? Heavenly Father, praise is due to you alone. You are the God who reigns in Zion, and we shall perform our vows to you. We want to obey you. We want to love you wholeheartedly. You are the God who hears our prayer, and all flesh comes to you. When our sins prevail against us, when they stack up, we look to you as the one God who can atone for our sins. Blessed are you, God, who has chosen to bring near people to yourself so that we might dwell in your house And in your house there is goodness and holiness because you are there. And God, we long to be there because we know that we will be fully and completely satisfied with you alone. By your awesome deeds, you answer our prayers with righteousness. You alone are the God of our salvation and the hope of all the ends of the earth. Lord, we ask this morning that you would speak powerfully to your people through your word. We need to hear from you. We know that you desire to make your people holy and that you will. What you've started, you will complete. And so we come in faith. We come humbly. We ask that you would use this time to glorify your great name. We love you, Lord, and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think of when you hear the word unity? There are numerous causes today that wave the flag of unity as a marketing tool to try to recruit support. They are seeking to combine people from all different walks of life and persuasions into one common greater goal. They'll use guilt, sorrow, any means necessary to compel you to join their mission. Think of all the sad puppy dog photos, those commercials that I saw growing up. But biblical unity is different. It's distinct in its source, in its motivation, but also even in its mission. This theme of unity is found in several epistles written to the early churches, but in the Gospel of John in chapter 17, we see the priority of unity in Jesus' prayer. If you flip over to John 17 real quick, I want to start by looking at Jesus' prayer before we flip over to Philippians John chapter 17, starting in verse 20, Jesus is praying and he says, I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What's amazing is that Jesus is praying for you and for me. And look at what he prays for us. He says in verse 21, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, he wants us to be unified for this purpose, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of Christ's church is part of Christ's plea to the Father for us. 
And it's so that the world may know Jesus. This morning, we are going to be continuing our study through the book of Philippians. And what we're going to see is this same theme, this theme of unity as a servant of Christ. You can flip over to Philippians, as that's where we'll be primarily this morning. In Philippians, for those of you that haven't been with us, Paul is writing a personal friendship-style letter to the church he planted in Philippi. And Paul's greeting, his prayer, and even his personal update in chapter 1, Paul's been drawing the attention of this church to the main theme of joyfully serving Christ. But Paul is not some senior pastor at a megachurch with missionaries spread out around the world. Paul is in the trenches of ministry. He's suffering for Christ and for the advancement of his gospel. With his hands in chains and his heart overjoyed, he writes to this concerned partner in the gospel to tell them, Christ is my everything. So I must serve him, and when I suffer in service for him, I will rejoice. But Paul doesn't conclude his letter with a mere update to tell them about what's going on. Rather, in verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul turned a corner to tell these fellow Christians that they are to live their lives for the gospel as well. And as servants of Christ today, God's word is calling out to you. It's telling you that you are to live your entire life for this one purpose. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The one thing that is to be all-consuming in your life is Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he's done, and what his marching orders are for you today. Those orders are laid out clearly in scripture in that first phrase. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what's amazing is that it's not just individually, but it's corporately. Notice how in this verse he said, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul is saying that the gospel of Christ is the top priority. It's the singular grand purpose with which we are called to live for as servants of Christ. And when the mission of Christ is the main thing, there will be a uniting effect on the servants of Christ. From the beginning of this letter, Paul has been building up, anticipating making this very point. He's been seeding this idea of unity with persistent repetition. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 4, he says, In every prayer of mine for you all. In verse 7, he would say, It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. And then in verse 8, he says, How I yearn for you all. Are you catching the phrase? Are y'all catching the phrase? He's not just saying you in a plural form to kind of capture a group. He's using a different word with the word you to make sure that they capture, I'm talking to every single one. I want all of you to be on the same page. Paul's heart is not for some of Christ's church, but for all of them. And this central idea in verse 27 of living in a manner worthy of the gospel is evidenced through unity in the gospel. 
But to ensure that the Philippians do not misunderstand what he means by unity, he proceeds in chapter 2 to explain two aspects of unity for a servant of Christ. And we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 2, but we'll actually just be spending most of our time this morning primarily on the first two verses. Let's read our first four verses together. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The first aspect of unity as a servant of Christ that Paul mentions is the cause for unity. Why is it that we as Christians can have unity? Our cause for unity as servants of Christ is grace. It's God's grace. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul says, So. As if to focus our attention further on the same idea he pointed out in the previous four verses. And he zooms in by making a logical statement that connects both verse 1 and verse 2 together. If you look in the text, he says, If then, right, if there is any of these things, then, in verse 2, complete my joy by being this way. It's clearly an if-then logic statement. If this is true of you, if you have experienced these blessings in Christ, then you ought to live in a specific way that reflects Christ. Paul goes on to list for us several blessings that Christians experience as recipients of God's saving grace. And although this is not meant to be exhaustive, it is meant to electrify our hearts with gratitude, not just for what Christ has accomplished, but for what Christ is accomplishing in our lives today. First, he mentions encouragement in Christ. These Philippian believers are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And Paul states that in verse 30 of chapter 1. He says that they're engaged in the same conflict that he had. The initial motivation for unity mentioned is encouragement in Christ. This means to come alongside and to give assistance by offering comfort, by offering counsel, or exhortation. Paul asserts the same idea in Romans 15, verse 5. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. This is unity energized by encouragement in Christ. How have you experienced encouragement in Christ? Maybe it's a passage of scripture that the Spirit brings to mind when you're feeling down. Or a text from a friend that says they're praying for you and for your growth in Christ-likeness. Or when the Spirit empowers victory against temptation, against sin. If you've been bought by the blood of the Lamb, you have personally felt this kind of encouragement in Christ. And this grace It's meant to compel the servant of Christ toward something, toward preserving unity that is so precious to Christ. The next blessing he mentions in verse 1 is comfort from love. 
Comfort carries the idea of speaking closely with someone for the purpose of showing genuine concern, helpfulness, and love. This amazing comfort we have from love is that God loved sinners like us. I think the Apostle John is a great example of this. He treasured the life-altering concept of God's love so much that he would even describe himself in humility as the one whom Jesus loved. It radically changed his identity. He would go on to explain God's love in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. He would say, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the testimony of unity motivated by God's love. We must never graduate from or attempt to move past the steadfast love of our amazing God. The next blessing that Paul mentions in verse 1 is participation in the Spirit. This is the idea of fellowship. It describes partnership and mutual sharing. And those who have been made alive in Christ, the Scripture calls us temples of the Holy Spirit. Once you have been saved, you are at that moment permanently indwelt with the third person of the Godhead as a guarantee of eternal life. Paul would overflow in Ephesians chapter 1 about the blessing of the Holy Spirit for all those who are in Christ. He writes, in him, referring to Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Later in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul would lay out his argument that both Jews and Gentiles are to be one in Christ. He concludes in chapter 2, verse 22, he says, In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. And he says, how how is this being accomplished? How is this being done? He says, by the Spirit. This is unity through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul mentions these first three blessings in the closing of another letter to probably the most combative, divisive, and messed up church we find in Scripture. The church at Corinth. This church would split up into factions, saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Even some of the really Christianese ones like to say, I follow Christ. Division, though, how does that fit in? It doesn't. He would even challenge Paul's integrity and his authority. But Paul concludes his letter in 2 Corinthians in chapter 13 with this exhortation to this divided church. He says, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And then in verse 14, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is a Trinitarian blessing of God's grace towards us. But Paul added one more cause in our text this morning for unity as a servant of Christ. Look again in verse 1 of chapter 2. He concludes with saying, 
affection, and sympathy. These are evidences of a changed heart in the life of a servant of Christ. Affection is the deep personal longing for those who are dearly loved. Paul modeled this back in chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. God's desires toward God's people is evidence of God's work in your heart and in your life. Let me say that again. Godly desires toward God's people is evidence of God's grace at work in you. And when your heart is filled with love for those whom Christ died to save, the result will be unity. Sympathy refers to compassion. It's affection in action. It's putting hands and feet to the heart. This is living out a heart that has been transformed by the gospel, by treating others with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and patience. This is unity caused by a changed heart. Now that we've looked at the pieces, though, we need to zoom back out. And we need to try to tie this all together. Because he's really making one point from this list. He says, if there is any experience, four times he uses the word any, any at all. Any experience of God's grace transforming your life, the only right response is living in a way that highlights the gospel of Christ that has changed you. And according to God's word, the lighthouse that shines the beacon of the gospel into this dark world is unity in Christ's church. This text ought to make us look in the mirror. If we're being honest, there are many times each day that we forget God's grace toward us. We harbor hate in our hearts over an offense. We spew slander or we gobble up gossip. We refuse to reconcile with one another or repent of clear sin in our own life. When we do this, we're telling the world that God's grace is simply not enough. Worse yet, we're telling God, your grace is not enough. But when we forgive one another, when we encourage and exhort one another in truth and love, when we humble ourselves by confessing our sin to one another, as scripture tells us to, what we're telling the world is that God's grace has changed my life and it can change yours too. Better yet, we're telling God, you have saved my life and everything I am belongs to you. And nothing that this world offers, nothing that my flesh desires can compare with you. The right response of a servant of Christ to the saving grace of Christ is being united to the body of Christ. And here's why. Here's the central truth that makes unity crucial for a servant of Christ. The fact of the matter is that we, the way we live toward one another displays the worth and power of Christ. The way we live towards each other displays the glory of Christ. Very simply, unity glorifies Christ. 
This is the first aspect that Paul brings up and reminds us that God's powerful grace causes us to preserve unity for his glory. Paul concludes, excuse me, Paul continues in the next verse. We're not done yet, sorry. Paul continues in the next verse to show us the second aspect of unity as a servant of Christ. The second aspect is a call for unity. Our call for unity as servants of Christ is joyful. It's a joyful call. Paul's logic is, since God's grace is abundant toward you, then, he continues in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Some might read this verse and say, hey now, wait a minute, Paul is telling this church that his happiness is dependent on their performance? That doesn't seem right. It sounds like kind of relational manipulation, actually. It might sound like, you know what would make me really happy right now is if you could just stop bickering and get along. That would really help. But he's definitely not saying that, right? No, he's not saying that because the very next verse says, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. That's not the point that Paul's making. Rather, Paul is simply continuing to model for this church the big theme of the entire letter, joyfully serving Christ. Joyfully serving Christ. You see, Paul has a crystal clear picture of his identity as a servant of Christ. He has shown the heart of Christ and that he prioritizes Christ's mission and that Christ is his very life. When in chapter 1 he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ is everything to him. So here in verse 2, he's saying his greatest delight as a servant of Christ is when Christ is glorified. And Christ is glorified when the bride for which he died is radiant with unity through the transforming power of God's grace toward us. Joy in this life, friends, is not achieved through wealth, through comfort, or approval. It's not going to be achieved through romance or knowledge or power. Satisfying, lasting, and abounding and complete joy is found alone in God. One of the biggest ways we experience joy is when we do what we are made for. When a six foot seven guy dunks a basketball, his jubilation in large part is attached to the idea that he's like, man, I was made for this. When a mother nurses a newborn child, even though there can be pain and it can be difficult, there's a sense of excitement rooted in this idea that I'm made for this. College students are wrestling with the idea, what is it that I'm made for? What am I supposed to do with my life? Even little kids persistently pursue playtime and laughter because they're longing to experience this sort of joy. What you need to hear this morning is that your career, your family, your future, or even your fun time is not what you were made for. God is your creator. He made you. And he designed you personally and uniquely with talents and gifts. But he has not left you high and dry to figure out your own ultimate purpose. 
He's written you a book. You could even call it a manual, written by Emmanuel. King David would declare this concept in song through Psalm 16. Listen to what the psalmist writes. You, God, make known to me the path of life, the way in which I'm supposed to go, what I'm made for. And listen to what he discovers. He says, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The chief end of man, what we are made to do, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Your joy as a servant of Christ is directly linked to God's glory. And letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel is by definition living for God's glory. And if we are going to live for God's glory, what will, what will it look like? It'll look like living in unity with God's people. When we glorify God by living out the unity that we have in Christ, we are doing what we are made for. We're doing what we're saved for. And our joy will be complete. But not only do we find joy in verse 2, we also find a call for unity in this list of statements. Instead of simply saying, be unified, He spends time to expound on what this joyful call to unity looks like for a servant of Christ. Unity is being of the same mind, he says, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, the mind and the affections combine together in complete agreement for one singular purpose. The word mind in this text is a word repeatedly used twice here and again in verse 5 when he says, have this mind. But for us to understand what this mind is referring to, we need to go back to its first reference, which is back in verse 27. Let's look again up at verse 27 of chapter 1. In the middle he says, that I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the target of this one mind. It's this walking worthy, living worthy, magnifying and glorifying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our unity is centered upon the gospel. If we're going to be faithful servants of Christ, we must live lives that are constantly gospel-oriented. There are plenty of churches today that claim that they are about the gospel, that they're all about it. But they either get the gospel wrong or they don't make the gospel central. They either don't have the same mind or they don't have one mind. This sort of one-mindedness ought to be evident in the church. One-mindedness should be evident in the worship. You should be able to see the gospel when you're singing it. You should see it in the lyrics. You should be ministered to it in your heart. Friends, worship without the gospel is simply white noise. It should be a one-mindedness type of attitude that's evident in the preaching. The gospel needs to be present in preaching. We need the gospel. We need to know what Jesus has done, and we need to not forget. Preaching without the gospel is powerless pleading. One-mindedness should be evident in the fellowship. 
when we're communing with one another in this unique gift that we have bought for us in Christ, the gospel should be evident in our conversations with fellow Christians. Fellowship without the gospel at any point is simply fake friendship. This morning, we need to examine our hearts. Are you at a point in your life where you feel again with the gospel rant? Does every little thing need to always be about the gospel? It's sort of exhausting. Friend, what you need this morning is not the singing, not merely the sermon or the sentiments of fellow saints. What you need is a strong dose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worship, preaching, and fellowship are simply God's ordained means to remind you of his glorious grace in the sacrifice of his son for your sins. It's a vehicle meant to deliver us the gospel message. That's what we need. And when we recognize this, when we really see it, you will experience the joy that comes from being united with the body of Christ. Maybe there are some here this morning that have believed a different gospel. It's not a same-mindedness. Maybe some have rejected Christ as he's revealed himself in his word and made for themselves a Jesus of their own making, one that promotes a worldly ideology of love, one that wants mercy without justice, one that desires my own happiness and not my holiness. Under this Jesus mask is really the idolatry of self. When you create a God whose supreme purpose is to meet your needs, you're making yourself out to be God. Not only that, you're actually challenging the authority of the one true God. You've got the eternal supreme creator of the universe, the heavyweight champion over here in the red corner, and you've got you, the finite sinful creature in his universe in the blue corner. You literally have 0% chance of winning. Yet, with your hardened heart, you continue to swing and fight and rebel. But God. But God has made a way to fix your heart and to adopt you into his family. God the Father sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place for your sinful rebellion. And he rose again on the third day, just as he said he would, providing you with the eternal life, an eternal life full of joy with him and all those who put their trust in him alone for salvation. Do you know this amazing God? Do you know the amazing and deep love that we sang of this morning? Have you ever experienced the grace and joy described in this text If not, you need to turn from your sinful rebellion and trust in Jesus Christ alone who can save you from your sin so that you too can understand God's word and delight in God himself. Gospel unity in Christ's church glorifies God and it brings complete joy to the servant of Christ. This is our joyful call to unity as servants of Christ. Before we close, I'd like to look at simply three ways in which we fail to preserve the unity of Christ, the, one, the unity that he has already accomplished and purchased. 
unity is not something that we try to uh, get, right? Unity is something that Scripture describes as maintaining, as upholding, as shining, because Christ has already accomplished it. But what ways do we fail to glorify God with unity? The first way we fail to preserve unity is unbelief. For some this morning, you may have been hurt by Christians or even church leadership. And that painful experience prevents you from believing that unity is actually even possible. If unity was dependent on individual Christians or institutions, you would be right. But our unity was established by the saving work of Jesus Christ. This means that your unbelief, friend, is not in people or in institutions, but in the promises of Jesus Christ. You need to repent of your unbelief and turn in faith to Christ, who is your source of life. You need to remember and rest in his grace and pray that he would cultivate a heart of compassion and courage to uphold unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think a second way that we fail to preserve unity is passivity. When we refuse to address sin, an effort to, quote, keep the peace or avoid conflict, we are abandoning the gospel that unites us. The gospel confronts sin because it deals with it in truth and love. But I think the bigger issue is the discernment piece. How do we know if we're being patient or if we're being passive? Patience stays engaged, but passivity checks out. Patience prayerfully considers when to speak, while passivity boils inside without saying a word. Patience is motivated by sacrificial love, while passivity is driven by self-love. At the heart of the gospel is this powerful and glorious selfless love of Christ. When your selfishness is so rampant that you are intentionally avoiding other Christians, or you purposefully prevent believers from knowing anything about your spiritual life, you're not living out the gospel message. You're loving yourself. And what you need to do is confess your passivity and apathy towards Christ's church as self-love. We need to call our sin what the Bible calls our sin. And we need to look to Christ who can change you by his grace to love others sacrificially the exact same way that he loved you. And this love for others is truly simply an expression of your love for God. Let me give you an example. Maybe um, you have a prickly pear person in your life. Somebody that, man, it's like sandpaper on skin. If we stick around, there's going to be blood. I mean, this is going to be bad news. We just do not get along for one reason or another. But let's say that these two people are Christians. And let's say there's humility to come together and to spend five minutes in prayer together. What you get to do is you get to see what is this person's relationship with the Lord? How is the Lord challenging them? How are they pleading to the Lord? Let's say you study scripture together and you see how the Spirit is at work to apply God's word to their heart, to expose sin, and to see them confess and repent sin. Wow, God's really at work in their life. Let's say that you start serving together in ministry and side by side you see, wow, God's really gifted them with service or encouragement 
man, they really just love administrating and helping others. That's amazing what God's really equipped them through his spirit to do. What happens is you're not really worried about this abrasive personality stuff that really is saying, ah, you don't get along with me, you don't serve me the way I want, so we're not going to be friends. We're not going to get along. We're not going to actually have fellowship with one another. But rather, when you, when you take these steps of faith to engage, what happens is you actually grow a love for this fellow Christian because you're growing to see God in them. You're seeing how God's making them more like Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you love Jesus. And when you see Jesus in their life, you overjoy and you love them and you embrace them. And when other people are like, man, they're really pricking, they'd be like, hey, that's my brother. I love him. We don't, we don't talk that way about him. Do you know him? I mean, do you actually know him? Because I do. And I really enjoy his fellowship. He has a sweet heart for the Lord. That's what it looks like to have unity, to say, I'm going to get past my own personal preferences and delight in God as he's working in his church. What you end up doing is not just loving people because you see things that are compatible with yourself, but you love what God is doing in their life. This is what's missed out on when passivity and fear take a back seat to pursuing unity in the local church. This is sacrificial love, and we need to confess our passivity or our fearfulness of others and say, I'm going to lean in. I'm going to expose my heart in faith and trust that God is going to do a work in me, and I get to delight and joy at what he's doing with his church. A third way that we fail to uphold unity, I think, is arrogance. When we promote man's wisdom over God's, we pursue man's glory, not God's. And friends, our, sinful, our sinfulness is very, very deceitful. We often like to paint piety on the outside of our pride. We scrape through scripture in an effort to justify our foredrawn conclusions that we want already. And then we load up the Bible verse bullets and in rage, we unleash a barrage of rounds to whoever sets us off next. When we approach God's word or God's people this way, we make ourselves judge, jury, and executioner. We make ourselves out to be God. And the whole time we're feeding on this lie that we are really just, quote, speaking for God. Friends, the most visceral, righteous anger response that we see out of Jesus is his rage toward those who said they spoke for God and they were totally wrong. We need to remember that we are called to speak the truth in love and we need to submit our thinking, our preferences, our attitudes to God's word as he's revealed himself. And that Truth needs to be carried out in love and compassion for other believers. The world needs to see it. And we're called to it. If this is you this morning, what you need to do is you rightly need to identify your arrogance as sinful pride in aspiring to be God. You need to turn from your sin to Christ and humbly approach his word and let it train you, as we've seen in Titus, to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly lives in this present age. Friends, this unity is something that Christ prayed for us to have. 
And more than that, it's something that Christ died to accomplish. The unity he has won is meant to be displayed to the world for his glory. This is the unity of the servant of Christ. Our cause for unity is grace, and our call for unity is joyful. By God's grace, may we glorify God by preserving unity as joyful servants of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that your kingdom, your will, will be done. And Lord, we just ask that you would give us grace. Grace to be about your purposes for our lives. We ask that you would give us hearts of humility and hearts of boldness. That you would help us to recognize that the gospel transforms lives. The good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. And you've given us a joyful call. You've evidenced motivation through your grace and changed our lives. Help us not to be blind. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And I ask, Lord, for this church that we would be obedient to your call to unity. That we would not let strife grow rampant. That we would be adamant about pursuing peace with one another as much as depends on us. That we would love you wholeheartedly and we would even entertain any sort of conflict or issues without fear because we love Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We ask that you would be honored and glorified through this church. We ask that for the churches here in this town that they too would be unified in the gospel for your glory and that these lighthouses would shine bright and that many in Lawrence would see a totally different entity in this town, an entity that only can be made by Jesus Christ so that they would come and see what is so different and that they would rejoice and praise and glory to your great name for what you have done, for purchasing a people for yourself and for your glory. We love you, Lord, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.